0: Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Chris Armstrong, who is the science liaison for the Open Medicine Foundation, or OMF, as some of you might know it. OMF is an organization that is working on building awareness and funding research into ME-CFS, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, chronic fatigue syndrome. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on, Lauren.
0: Yeah, it's a total pleasure. So why don't we just start from the top and you can tell us about your work uh, in research and um, how you came to OMF.
1: Okay, so I'll probably start everything at the beginning. Mm. Um, I actually got into this area straight from uh, a science undergraduate degree. Mm. Uh, I went into working as a what would be the equivalent of a master's in the US, looking into MECFS at the time. And that really came as a project with uh, that had very little funding. It was more of a dreamed up uh, project between Two people actually who met on a tram—my um, supervisor okay. and yeah, someone who was also working somewhere strangers close to the tram.
0: tram. <laughs> yeah,
1: strangers <laughs> on a, strangers on a tram, indeed. And then they come to cook together a project uh, in regards to MECFs, uh, which which was looking at the gut bacteria actually, oh, um, and trying to and trying to determine these gut bacterial. Differences between mecfs and healthy people, and then looking at uh, maybe some of the compounds or, pro- or what we call metabolites that are being produced by these uh, bacteria, and how they might be affecting. With that MECFS.
0: makes a lot of sense because gut bacteria has so much to do with the root cause of so many chronic illnesses. So it's, it's interesting that you've been looking into it with MECFS.
1: Yes, yes. Well, my, my supervisor was a protein chemist, but the, but the gentleman that he met was a microbiologist and he'd been working in this area. He'd actually had a private lab looking into MECFS and, and other diseases, actually. He was looking at doing, uh, he pretty much would measure the amounts of bacteria and the types of bacteria in the in samples um in the stool samples and from that would determine what we would call gut dysbiosis
0: wow so yeah that
1: was very early on in the day that was dec- uh, 10 years ago and okay
0: so this was when you were like an uh, undergrad student
1: yeah well this is just coming out this is coming to what was equivalent of a master's and that um the gut dysbiosis actually sort of work has become bigger and bigger over the the 10 years for sure but also looking at the metabolites which are these little compounds that uh, everyone creates what bacteria create we use them for energy we use them for everything and you probably know them as amino acids sugars lipids uh, fatty acids all these little compounds but for us they're real they're real molecules
0: yeah And And that's what we're trying to
1: measure. Yeah, yeah. And so that is actually my area. So my main area is to measure these little compounds Mm. in um, whatever different types of biofluids, so blood, urine, uh, saliva, all these different type of areas in which we can access to these fluids. And what they do is they tell you about the overall system Mm. um, of the body. And they are very complicated in, in the way that you try and... Because they're very complex because they... Constantly changing, uh, and they're constantly dynamic and working with each other in relation to what you, as the person, is doing or feeling. Mm. Uh, whether you've eaten, whether you're sleeping, whether you're exercising, they will change. And so, so it's they hard to get you,
0: like a baseline, even just for a, a typical healthy person.
1: Yeah, it is tough to get a baseline, but because they're so sensitive, they'll tell you really things that are going on that um in, within the body that might be most closely linked to symptoms. And so that as a area of research has actually been very new. It's only really come out or it's been building probably over the last few decades, but it's only really become more popular in the last five, five to 10 years actually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very new area of research and that's become one of the big things for MECFS CFS because this is a condition where there is no known pathology there is no known damage that can be measured within the individuals or that has been visualized within the individuals that have this disease. We just have a complex set of symptoms. Mm. And so that was the value of this type of research is that usually you use metabolomics to characterize the pathology, but because it's so sensitive, mm. um, so sensitive to just the general conditions of the body, you, it will tell you whether there's something wrong if you even haven't seen the pathology itself. So, right. and that's, this has been one of the first consistent findings in this field. Um, okay. And so, so this that, is
0: sort of opening a door to potential treatments possibly.
1: This is, yes. Well, this is opening a door to at the very initial, at the, at the outset really to kind of maybe think whether we are finding some biomarkers, mm-hmm. but also to really understanding the disease because it gets taken for granted that a lot of these, diseases that we get diagnosed is really based on the pathology that you see a doctor will find that you're not making myelin or your myelin is damaged and you Mm will have Mm -hmm. lesions, or you'll have yeah there'll be problems with uh you know tumors or growth that shouldn't Mm -hmm. be there or you have different types of damage um, within the body and part of this of what we're trying to do is determine how or where this issue is in me patients because we don't have any of them.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that seems to be one of the really frustrating things about having me or possibly having it, right, is that there's a lack of diagnostic structure, which you guys are trying to work on with these studies, but also um, a lack of treatment structure. Can you walk us through a little bit about what ME-CFS is for people who are listening and going, what are you talking about?
1: Yeah, so it's a complicated disorder. Mm. Uh, it's was originally known, I guess, as myalgic encephalomyelitis. And probably the best way to understand it is to go back into time, into where it happened, because there have been reports of this condition for, for many, many years, for centuries. Mm. Um, but the major reports kind of came out as outbreaks during the middle of the 19th century. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, this, was, this is a bit really unusual component of this disease is that you can have outbreaks of it. And so what it really is, is um, something like a trigger or a trauma or sometimes no trauma, but essentially what happens is the person gets to a state where they have significant levels of fatigue, uh, significant issues with sleep, significant issues with um, pain and sensitivities uh, and when you say significant issues sensitivities
0: yeah it's not just like someone's real tired but it's like these people are no, no longer able to function as they normally would
1: yes this this is this is a, a loss of function and yeah. the, the and basis of the diagnosis is yeah generally a, at least a minimum of 50 percent loss of function mm. um, and so then you have the main the main symptom of this disease is something called post-exertion malaise Mm -hmm. which is after any type of exertion, uh, mental, physical, uh, stressful, you'll have a very uh, significant dip into exacerbating your symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, And these will include uh, significant headaches, uh, inability to move, uh, fatigue like you've never felt before, what patients refer to as brain fog where they can't really find uh, the words that they want to say. And so that is the most debilitating component of the disease itself. And one of the toughest things to organize and to try and to, for the research, for the patients themselves to get come to grips with is that, you know, doing work, doing exercise, doing exertion is going to sometimes make them a lot worse. And so mm-hmm. how do you grapple with that? And um, in terms of, you know, and they, they, there's a variety, there's probably over 60 t- different types of symptoms, but wow. the, the, four, the four core are really post-exertion malaise, uh, fatigue, unrefreshing sleep, and cognitive impairment. So. Mm. They are, the whole, and then they'll have pain episodes as well. It's highly comorbid with diseases like fibromyalgia as well. Yep. Um, so there are a number of different conditions which kind of, which have very similar con, uh, symptoms sort of to dovetail, this. They right? Yeah, they really dovetail into each other.
0: Yeah. So does that mean that, that ME-CFS has been misunderstood or un, underdiagnosed by the medical community up to this point?
1: uh yes uh it has also the the amount of attention into research into this area has been very minimal Mm. um so probably i need to go back onto the history train so Mm. when the outbreaks first came out it was really unexplained it was kind of it was kind of seen as like a flu-like illness or a polio like illness initially Um, and it was first probably best described in the 60s um by this thing called the Ramsey definition and that's when it first got the name myalgic encephalomyelitis mm. uh, and that's I think it was recognized by the World Health Organization as that in yeah. 1969
0: mm.
1: and then there was some more outbreaks this was kind of the area um, where it was getting the most public attention because when you get a lot of people getting struck down with a mysterious illness you know it captures the attention of, of people and then yeah. so in this was actually happening largely in Europe. And in Australia, and there was some in the US, but it wasn't until around the 80s in the US where they had these significant uh, a number of different outbreaks and it came down to the CDC coming together and putting towards a definition where they called it chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. And this was largely based around chronic fatigue Uh, the fatigue aspect for a Mm. long period of time. And this is a key aspect of this disease. And another complexity is you need to have it for at least six months. So it's, it's an ongoing chronic disease that isn't going away. Um, And do
0: we know if it's infectious as well, if it were, was associated with these outbreaks in the past?
1: It does get, it gets associated really strongly to infection because of these outbreaks and because a lot of people can get them from significant infections. But Mm. Probably if you wanted to put an umbrella of what causes it, it's just general significant levels of, I guess, of a trauma or a stress for a long period of time. So yeah. we talk about stress in medical areas. It's not, it's not mental stress as what people probably most readily recognize or associate to the word stress, but you have many different times, like physical stress, you have traumatic stress, you have mental stress, emotional stress, nutritional stress, chemical stress, And so we really have many different factors that can cause Mm. this, Um, but it's really in the body itself. They're all kind of pinging off the same pathways Mm. because your body doesn't really have multiple different ways. It deals with all these different stresses, you know, it it hasn't developed or evolved to have a different pathway for dealing with getting hit from a bus or dealing with a lion eating it or dealing with a a disease. It's all very much the same pathway. It's all
0: fight or flight, isn't it?
1: It's fight or flight, but it's also the healing pathways within the body and how they really um, break it down. If you were, I mean, you, you have to have evolved to have a way to heal yourself that can deal with anything that's happened to you mm. um, because the body hasn't evolved to know the things or the diseases that are coming at it. It's evolved a system that it can kind of bounce back from anything that comes at it. Well, that's and the idea. People
0: with, with me are lacking this system or, or it's malfunctioning somehow. Is that right?
1: That's, that's kind of the idea. That's mm-hmm. one of the ideas and that's one of the major schools of thought in this disease. Of course, mm-hmm. there's also always people who are concerned about the, the, the role that pathogens might play. And, you know, we're just scratching the surface with the way that roles of pathogens might play. I mean, the idea of conventional medicine has really really being based on acute based pathogens or acute mm. based diseases where you suddenly get a severe onset you know and then you can clear it up with this medication right whereas what we're talking about here is more uh, other com- other other entities like bacteria or other molecule, other pathogens that might exist with the person at the same time for a long period of time
0: so how big is this epidemic do you guys have any way of measuring what you're dealing with here.
1: So probably some of the best estimates we have is about one in two to three hundred people.
0: So is it um, considered a rare disease then?
1: It's not a rare disease actually. This is far too high uh, in prevalence to be a rare disease.
0: Mm.
1: But what it is is is, is uh, treated like a rare disease, um, and that really comes back to the misunderstandings about what this condition is and that's really led into a lot of the stigma associated with it i guess Mm. or the or the lack of research associated with it right Um, so yeah that's um that's a that's a crucial area for this disease i mean because without having um that pathology or being able to find this biological diagnosis it's been difficult to start research into it and so it's been difficult to know where to start and without providing those answers early on it's actually been very difficult for the medical community to come up with some strategies to how to treat the patients as well. Mm -hmm. So it's all kind of like a mess together. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you find that you are hearing stories about doctors, um, you know, perhaps misdiagnosing someone with hypochondria or like hysteria even?
1: Sure, definitely. That's, that has been a big part of this disease's history and and still happening. So it's not just the history, it's still happening today. And I think a lot of that comes down to just um, not being educated enough in the area itself and, and the other t- different types of research that's happening. You know, it's, you know I, I, do, I do feel for doctors uh, and, and people sometimes because obviously they have a difficult job and they have a lot of things to cover. But it's only certain type of clinicians who will kind of dig in and, and, and try and dig in and try and really understand everything about what their patient is doing and, and so what's happening to their patient and and educating themselves on this disease and, and the new research that's happening. Um, but at the same time, you know, everything has to get better at um, communicating what to do. Clinicians have to get, the ones who are very knowledgeable on MECFS have to get together and formulate, you know, common um common i guess
0: like language guidelines. and diagnostic structure. Yeah, language. Yeah, guidelines yeah.
1: guidelines diagnostic structure all this sort of stuff and treatment guidelines
0: mm. to
1: help people who probably don't want to invest you know a long, long period of their life, truly really trying to understand this, but Absolutely. just so that they can have easy access to it and help the patients in front of them.
0: And what about the patients in the meantime? You know, it seems like they're in this holding pattern and that's then going to take a further emotional toll. Um, and yeah. they just stay sick, don't they? I mean, how, how do you see that changing in the future with the research that you're doing and the funding that you guys are working on raising to continue research?
1: Well, I mean, the patients really are the forefront of our minds, in in, and that's really what uh, Open Medicine Foundation was really set up for. It's about trying to find a way in which we can get treatments as fast as possible, because mm. you know the, the the role of research is generally to slowly evolve and and build better treatments and and add to the existing. But in this case, there's really nothing for these people. So, you know, the forefront of for our for us is just to get something um specific right. so they can at least ameliorate a lot of the problems they have with this disease. And so that's kind of uh the path that we take there. Well we we like to show people what we're doing on the road to getting treatments it's not just you know we just do clinical trials on all these different types of drugs because that's extremely expensive and time consuming so you've got to work out you know the most efficient way to do it so you're, you're kind of performing research but also optimizing the path on the way to performing research and you're constantly thinking about how is this work that i'm doing going to translate to some sort of physical product like either a diagnostic or a treatment for the patients themselves because that's really the difference here i mean mm. i worked in academic academic research and the difference really from working now with um, open medicine foundation is that that push towards treatments and that push mm. towards diagnostics it's it's no longer the paper is the final entity or the research article is the final entity of, that we're trying to get out here it's
0: it'll be a cured patient
1: yeah that's that's the goal mm. um, it's, yeah so that's you know and I, I really believe in that goal um and i believe in the concept of that um yeah. removing kind of other distractions
0: yeah, does that does that sort of light a fire under everyone's asses when they're when they're researching? You know that like there there are patients in mind here, and and you're getting to know some of them personally as well. Like that kind of that level of personal involvement does that take a toll on you guys as researchers too?
1: Uh, it's very uplifting, actually. I think mm. um, depending, on, I guess, on the way you perceive it, but I perceive it as very. Uh, motivational, and yes, it does light a fire under you. I think that when I got into the field, you know, I don't. A lot of the people who actually research in the field, or the the, uh, the big names, I guess, researching this area, um, have a relationship with people with me It's
0: very interesting, that isn't it? They have a personal connection to it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: they have a personal connection, and I guess because it is so underfunded, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you really, you really have to remove your steady job or remove your steady income as a, as a you know, a researcher,
0: yeah,
1: and go into something uncharted territories where there's probably not going to be enough funding on the s- other side to kind of keep you going, and right. so it's really just based on hope or belief that something will come of it and you'll be able to keep pushing forward. So, there is a lot of that. Um, the motivation has been a connection with MECFS. I personally don't have one, mm. um, but when I got into the field, uh, that was my main thing is as a master student you know having relationship with some of the patients just chatting to them and uh, getting to know the disease i think you see how unfair it is yeah and that's really what captured me was just how unfair this is and
0: when you say unfair you mean not just in terms of like how these patients are forced to live but in terms of their experience in the medical system because yeah no fault of the doctors just because no one understands it right
1: yeah that 's right i mean that's that 's the unfairness of it it 's just uh, you know i I kind of think that government groups need to be careful about trying to make sure that they 're funding uh, mm-hmm. a whole bevy of different diseases because you know you get a lot of research happening in certain conditions, and then there is a lot of these ones, i guess as you 'd know in the un uninvisible yeah <laughs> uh, there 's a lot of conditions out there, and that 's really what happens you know they 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 don't get the attention. They don't have the marketing dollars. They don't get that money out. And they they can't get money going into them for, how for does How does
0: the research funding for something like MECFS compare to the research funding for something like cancer?
1: Uh, it's very little. Um, yeah. probably I probably give numbers I think there was estimations as about $5 per patient is given to research in MECFS and mm. probably something in the order of nearly $3,000 per patient in AIDS, for instance. So wow, that's, you're talking about a 600 fold difference.
0: Which is not also to minimize the impact of these other diseases, but the fact that there's
1: no yeah, no funding
0: into this, it's like, we really need to start like, Considering this,
1: <laughs> that's that's the problem, right? So. Yeah, I mean that's the hard thing. You don't want to obviously say these other diseases aren't as important. Yeah. They're they're yeah. definitely as important, and that's the message is is really to see if you can get more funding into these areas, and um, it's just about fairness. It's about trying to get them the funding mm-hmm. that they deserve, absolutely, um, and recognizing the suffering that they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really really important, um, and. And the way you do that is with money. I mean, that's what money is important in in this world. That's how you get things done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's kind of what you need. I mean, we do a lot of work on volunteer. We could do a lot of work on people who are just willing to give their time. Mm. Um, but you still need a significant amount of money to make this sort of stuff happen. Unfortunately, yeah,
0: which is exactly why OMF exists. And hopefully you guys will, uh, reach a wider audience being on the show today. Um, So, do you find that patients are often ending up on some kind of government assistance because they're losing so much of their regular function, and then is there like f- does the government sort of fight back because there's this lack of diagnostic structure? Is it just this constant back and forth where no one gets anything
1: well yeah it's uh it's almost like it's you're kind of trying to find the villain in this, and there's just there's just no one seems to be the villain exactly, and then yeah. You kind of you you want there to be like some bad guy who's like pulling the strings and saying no, you can't have this money, you know, because <laughs> I don't care about you. Yeah. So the you know, the reality is that it's like this system which is kind of like a vicious cycle where mm-hmm. yeah, the government want to probably. I mean, i mean, the government people that I've spoken to, they're aware of it. They really want to get invested in it, but yeah. in the research field themselves, like for as an academic, you know, you're going up against the granting systems are based on fairness but you're going up against people who already have money in their field and they're using that money to do research and get results mm. and then they show that they have this history of all these results all these papers they show p- these res- like new results that they have in their grants when they're applying for funding and obviously, that looks a lot better compared to someone in uh, with a disease that really has no funding. Mm. You're trying to piece together some research. I mean, it's just it's just not a, it's not a fair playing field. Yeah. In that regard, and at some point, you you got to try and work out well. How do you make that system fair? I mean, because yeah. it's set up, designed to be fair. It's meant to be impartial. It's meant to be based on peer review, which is scientists mm. reviewing scientists. Um, And it's fair enough, if I had a grant come across my desk application and you have, or you have a few grants, you're going to give it to the one that looks like they have the better track record because you really don't know much more about this other than that they appear to be, the scientists themselves appear to have a great understanding of this disease. They've done a lot of projects into it. And so they probably look like the surest bet that they Mm -hmm. can deliver on this new project, this new funding that they're applying for. Mm. yeah this is the complexity of it and so what it comes down to is i guess government agencies having to do a what we call a targeted call or specifically saying look we're going to allocate money for people specifically looking at this disease so that they have kind of a leg up Um, Mm. and i guess it's not i guess it's like equity right it's not equality it's trying to elevate superficially just so that they can get to the point where they can actually get to equality
0: Yeah. And well, listeners tuning in now are going to, they're probably pegged the, the idea here that you have an accent, right? So um, (laughs) you came up working in Australia and now work in the U S in these research fields. So you've experienced at least the research into this condition in on both continents. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering if you've also through that experience, gained an understanding of, like, the medical system in these two countries. um, And as we're talking about the government, too, you know, do you see disparities between the two in the way in which patients and doctors are being both treated and trained, respectively?
1: uh that's a good question actually i think there is a lot of similarities i mean a lot of these issues that i'm talking about are just global issues it's it's lack of research it's lack of understanding globally and so then uh it's also i mean back in the history of the research area because there was no easy answers and you have all these patients you end up having a lot of people going into uh, or or a lot of gps offloading mecfs patients into you know psychiatry and and psychology Mm. and they're trying to work out ways in which they can help people with mecfs and some of those have been actually quite detrimental Mm. um so but those things are also kind of difficult to remove because now you've created like an industry and this is like this is the path that they go and then some people have their are uh, built entire careers on trying to help people through a psychiatry background with ME-CFS. So, so it's trying to help people with ME-CFS using their psychiatry background. Right. And so you've got to try and then remove them. You know, you've got to take them out of that and then try and make the emphasis more about biomedical. Yeah. Um, so
0: that, that they're understanding, understanding, so it sounds like the understanding in both fields, in both playing fields, I should say. So like in the US and in Australia that you've seen is that often it's considered a psychiatric problem that like it's a psychological disease and not something that's full body.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel in the in Australia, definitely more in the medical community probably feels more like that. Mm. Um, in the UK, definitely as well. Mm. Um, probably more strongly, my... my th- understanding of the us is they do that as well but i don't know if it's to that same level as in australia and the uk Mm. Um, i think it it could very well be a little better here although my experience in it might be not enough to really comment on that right um, sure working with the doctors because the the researchers and the doctors that i've worked with here are all specifically biomedical based Um, yeah and so the the nih is recently you know they seem to be quite receptive our government bodies for giving funding in Australia are a little slower, it seems.
0: Mm.
1: So um, there is Despite some... Despite
0: the fact that there's a nationalised health system in Australia.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I yeah. mean, in some ways, it's it's interesting you say that because in some ways I've noticed um, how, because it's a nationalised system, they have, na- they have like nationalised guidelines. So it really affects the government. You know, if you're going to start treating these people, there is more investment there already because, you know, if they're being treated for a disease not correctly, then I guess maybe people with me are actually burdening the government more with uh, the type of treatments that they're doing. However, that word made
0: me so sad when you said "burdening." <laughs>
1: no, no, yeah. no, it's horrible. No, but yeah. the 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 way I don't think the medical system in Australia, while we do have free healthcare, it doesn't it doesn't they don't get. Um, the, those benefits people in Australia with ME-CFS because the government hasn't recognized it. So that's what I was trying to say is like the, because if they recognize it, then they have to start paying for it type of thing. Mm, so yeah, of in Australia, uh, sorry, in, in the US, I'm not sure if it's to that same degree. Um, but then I guess insurance companies then probably have to start paying for it. And I know this probably. And they don't
0: want to. <laughs> yes,
1: that's yeah. right. No one wants to pay money. Um, and that's what it comes down to. And, and, uh, and the, money is,
0: the money sort of lives in a lack of diagnosis for that reason. So that's got to make it even harder for you to fight against the lack of understanding of this disease.
1: Yeah, that's the, that's the really terrible part about it, I guess. Yeah. And so what we want to try and do is, you know, I mean, OMF themselves aren't really associated strongly with uh, campaigning or advocacy or anything like that. Mm. The main focus is really the research and also education. Yeah. And so we really want to just leave from that and, and, and go, you know, well, we're just going to focus on this. We're going to push and try and get as much information biologically about this condition out there and trying to change people's minds. And then that's kind of like the grassroots effort of what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm, and because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com. That's E M B R labs.com enter code INVISIBLE at checkout and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Have there been stories of success with certain treatments? Like I've heard about certain controversial treatments, particularly the ones that take a psychological point of view, right? Yep. Um, that often get a bad rap in the MECFS community. And I'm wondering, you know, because it's like we're hearing a lot of bad news, right? <laughs> but um, what is the good news? Diagnostically speaking, you know, Has there been, have there been some bright spots along the way? Have there been people who've been cured and if they were cured, were they misdiagnosed in the first place?
1: So the, I think the biggest bright spot for me is just the momentum of research that's happening. So when I started in this field 10 years ago, there was like no funding, there was yeah. hardly anyone doing any type of research. And now today it's, you know, the funding has actually got to a level. It's still very low, but it's actually improved yeah. um, from nothing. And so, and also the research field is is much bigger as well. And there's some big name researchers coming into this. I mean, you have significant universities. I know OMF has, is funding collaborative centers at Harvard, at Stanford, wow. which are some of the big name research institutions in the U S yeah. um, and so, these are these are the bright spots they're the, the to me that's the biggest the biggest change and that's that's nothing to sneeze at really I mean this is where it all begins I and mean, every disease that we have now, even the ones that are well researched ones like multiple sclerosis they they started in a similar position, but they, they just started that fifty fifty years ago you know mm. so is it just about it continuing to, to, that,
0: to push with that momentum, or are there strategic ways in which um, OMF and individual researchers like you are sort of going about raising awareness for this illness?
1: Yes, there is. Um, there is a strat- The strategy is, well, I like to liken it from, and I'm Australian, so I liken, I like to liken it to, uh, to building a reef and Australian's really known for the Great Barrier Reef. And so that's a big part of of yep. um, things that we learn when we're, when we're younger and And to try and rebuild the reef because there's significant amounts of damage and they're trying to work out the fastest ways to do that. And so a reef letting something happen organically, like building a reef, like building a research field is you just kind of little bits of coral here and there grow. And, you know, the current might wipe them away. Well, with research you have, you might find little groups here and there. They don't find any answers. They find some answers, but then they don't have funding to continue, so they just kind of disappear. And so that's kind of what's been happening for for a little while with ME/CFS. There has been research, but very small scale, small research groups, mm. and they can't sustain themselves, so they kind of just disappear over the course. And so all the things that they learned, all that information is also gone.
0: Mm.
1: And so the difference is in what you do with kind of reef building is you try and create these farms or you, you, you create structures which can be protective mm. for the reef that's growing. So you, you work out ways in which you can anchor the, these, these reef building um, corals to these uh, solid structures and, mm. and then it kind of grows from there. And that's kind of what, we, what we're doing with the collaborative research centres so that the idea is that by funding them that sustainably and trying to do it long term, that they'll be around for a long period of time. And then instead of having a granting process where other researchers come to us and we give out a little bit of money here and there, we make sure that any of the research that happens is in collaboration with one of those centers. Mm. So when they build that knowledge or someone else is in another university is doing some research in collaboration with that group, you know, they do the project, they might find something good, they might find something bad, but in the end or, or nothing at all, but at the end you actually learn something. And that is retained within the collaborative centers. And that's really how we're trying to build out the initial or the initiation of this research field.
0: Yeah. It's almost as if you're trying to give the findings a little more life, isn't it?
1: You're trying to give the findings a little more life, but sustainability, you want to try and get them to a point where they can, they'll be around. And and that knowledge will be around for 10, 15 years. Yeah. 20 years or 30 years or however long. So. Mm Nothing, nothing is lost. We just don't want to lose all the little clues. We just don't want to keep losing all these little clues and pieces. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's really where it's coming down to. And also the standardized way in which they do the research. Um, mm-hmm. If you have a lack of funding, you know, generally in research, you'll just try and do whatever you can. Mm. But the idea is to try and do things the right way and consistent with each other. And that's important for a disease like ME-CFS, again, because there is no biomarker and so it's all the diagnosis is reliant upon looking at the clinical presentation of symptoms within the Mm -hmm. patients and following a diagnostic criteria and another layer of problems is that there are multiple types of criteria for this disease there's no even one consistent one that's being used there are ones that are highly recommended by bodies and groups but because it's evolved over time, it's evolved from the eighties to now over the last 30 years. And in that time period, you know, some people will just doctors will just take it and they're like, Oh, this is the diagnosis that I know. And then they just stick with it. Right. And they might be sticking with one that was from like 20, 30 years ago, but you know, not keeping up to date with the most, the most, the newest ones.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we hear about that kind of outdated information um, that doctors cling to sometimes. We hear about that in so many other illnesses. So it's no surprise that it's happening with ME-CFS as well.
1: Medicine was really set up to stop death happening, right? Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do or, or put out fires, but we're trying, it's not about like waiting for someone to get so bad that you then have to remove this symptom or this part of their disease or this thing that's really struggling with them. It's about trying to get to a point where people are, you know, having actually no problems or, and are healthy and can be fully committed in society. I think mm-hmm. is, that's, that's the goal. And I don't think that has been the goal.
0: Yeah, medicine.
1: You know, it's not. We've
0: got a sick care system and not a preventive care system.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like there are just a lot of mechanics. I mean, a lot of mechanics without the servicing. So you're just going taking your car to the shop every time it's like broken down, and then you like fix it again. Mm. Um,
0: rather than um, like putting good, good petrol in it and like,
1: yeah, and just looking oiling after it, it, like,
0: it and yeah, looking after it. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: that's really left to the, you know, at least, I mean, at least mechanics have servicing, you know, <laughs> True, <laughs> but, but I mean the, the, you know, we don't really have that to that degree because, I guess in the U S there probably is a difference. I mean, at least in Australia it's free. So all on you for not going to the doctor. But the the
0: other thing you said is that like, you know, because health is subsidized for citizens in Australia, it almost makes the red tape even more red tapey. That's what, that's
1: the concern is whether that is the, you know, because it is, you know, once you start going, Oh yeah, this is condition. We have to start paying for this now, you know, It's like they would like it to get to a point where we have a treatment first so that they can then fund the treatment because but then they know that the they're research. not going into a hole where they're just having to supplement, you know. All but it sounds other-
0: like they're asking for the chicken before the egg. That's right. Or putting the cart That's before it. the horse, I should say. <laughs> they,
1: they, recognize, they recognize it. I just don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, I think they'll recognize the research before they recognize the, you know at least funding that mm-hmm. is like treatment of patients, which is sad, but in a way they're probably already wasting money. There is, it's tied up. I mean, I, you know, it's tied up in psychiatry. I kind of talked about it touched on it a little bit. It's not to minimize
0: psychiatry as well, you know. No,
1: but, but, but people have created, but you've created an industry when you didn't have a, you know, you don't have an answer. So you mm. create this band aid. but then the people who make band-aids, they're a company now, you know? Yeah. And so they don't want to just go under. So if you're going to supplant the band aid making company, you've got to like fire all these people. But they're mm. kind of ingrained in this, like in the medical community. So yeah. you can't just like remove them because they're experts in dealing with this area, which no longer is relevant. So it's sort of. Uh,
0: so as a scientist, do you disagree with the psychological treatment of, or, or the sole psychological treatment of, of MECFS, like as that being the only.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I, it's it's not so much, you know, myself, I don't have a problem with cognitive behavioral therapy uh, mm-hmm. or psychiatry or psychology or any of these sort of things. Yeah. They definitely serve an important role. And sometimes that is the treatment um, and the quality of life and in trying to improve that. And they do a really great job. And I don't think they really should be the enemy. And that's what I wanted to try and make clear. There is no real big villain here.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and this is... But what what is the problem is like some small subsets of the way they treat these patients. So part of cognitive, they call it the same name, and language is actually one important topic. That probably should be brought up. Yeah, like we talk about this on on one of your podcasts, but
0: oh, well, we talk about it a lot. Actually, it comes up like randomly in different interviews. But like oh, your just
1: choice just, of words is huge. Choice of like, say they'll say cognitive behavioral therapy, and for most people, that's like. You know, that's like psychology, psychiatry. Mm. Uh, but then for ME/CFS, there's actually a specific type of cognitive be- behavioral therapy where they tell you you don't have the condition over and yeah. over, and that it's in your head. Yes, there's and a
0: there's a particular. It's like a a method. Yeah. yeah. But they
1: call it they call it CBT still. And so, wow. ME/CFS patients are like, we hate CBT. And then yeah, like, I
0: mean,
1: you say that to a bunch of psychiatrists, they're like, what?
0: Well, they're giving but CBT a bad name. They it's... don't even
1: know that that that's what they mean because yeah. they're they're just regurgitating what this other person has said because well, don't of,
0: they also in that particular um, that particular treatment, they like train lay people to, to treat um, me patients. Um, so you don't even have to be a trained psychologist. They, that,
1: that, that does happen as well. Yeah. Mean, yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's all that's part cool. of the,
0: the money machine behind that, that particular. Yeah,
1: that, ha- that does happen as well. I don't think you guys really touched on that much, but <sighs> that's a really touchy subject. Um, because what people see is mis- misdiagnosis is almost like a, a subjective term because yeah. you only know that it was misdiagnosed after the fact, mm-hmm. you know, after the fact that the person was treated by some psychiatry, psychiatry and it helped them. Yeah. And so that's not being honest to really what diagnosis is because that's not, they, don't, they weren't misdiagnosed. That is part of the diagnosis. They got right. diagnosed with this condition they they probably met all the categories but the reason they had this disease was could have been different and this could mm-hmm. very well be a different disease in general so it's not exactly misdiagnosis it's like
0: misunderstanding
1: well it's a di- it's a poor diagnosis so mm-hmm. the diag- so it's not poor di- it's a diagnosis that the criteria is problematic right in the first place the diagnosis Criteria has an issue in the first place, and that is that it's probably lumping a whole bunch of people under the same category. And so, we talking
0: looking at like several different diseases here, it might not, uh, just be yeah.
1: That. I mean, we, and we know that because um, a lot of the people who get diagnosed, so the, the older criteria, the mm. ones from 1988, 1994, they didn't have post exertion relays as a necessary. Um, symptom which is the prime symptom of the disease they had fatigue they had uh, um, sleep they had pain and so essentially you could just have those three things and have the disease and so if you had chronic pain that made it difficult for you to sleep and you were tired because of that you could have the disease if you know what I mean so that's Or if you and that, that could
0: be any that could be one of like thirty different diseases, yeah,
1: exactly right, and that's coming down to you know one of the main problems, and so that issue has been somewhat resolved um, by trying to improve the diagnosis. So the the more newer. 2003 criteria and the 2011 criteria. and
0: But this is still like, that's nearly a decade old now, too.
1: They're, they're like a decade old, but they're, yeah. they're, they're still far better than the older ones. But those older ones, and this is what happens when you create like a, a diagnostic that's really broad, you have like, the, you know, your population gets to this size. Yeah. And then you, you get a tighter population and it gets down to here, right? But then what happens to these people? Because <laughs> they're, like,
0: yeah. they're
1: like, I got diagnosed Basically,
0: this. And for and those now, who obviously like, no one now. can see what you've done, but you did like a little circle and a smaller circle inside it. And then what happens to the circle on the outside of those circles?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. that's the, you know, you got the outside circle. What happens to the, then you, you make the inside circle. But What's happening now with the people outside, you know? Yeah. And so then you're uh, dealing with, trying to work out where those people sit. Um, And so it's a difficult thing in terms of the diagnosis because people, you know, once you've kind of said the diagnosis is this, then you kind of almost become responsible a little bit for looking after these people broadly. But the important part, I guess, for research is that they recognize this. So the researchers are the ones that need to recognize that it could very well be multiple diseases or the diagnoses might be catching multiple diseases Mm. and that you need to be very specific with the clinician that you work with and the person who is providing you with patients and samples Mm. that they are extremely competent and extremely able to at least get a really refined cohort that you then go and study. And that's really, that's a lot of part of the research, but it also creates a difficulty in, in corroborating other people's research because you don't know, much about you don't know all that's required to know about the way the patients they got were diagnosed so they'll usually say what criteria they used but truthfully there's a lot more that goes on than just the criteria mm. like a doctor every specialist seems to have their own special mix of things that they do yeah. to separate these groups um,
0: yeah
1: so that's there's
0: really no standardization of any of it
1: no, that's that's tough, I think. And that's,
0: that's part of the, the journey for you guys on the research front.
1: Yeah, that's that's part of the journey. Um, and that's why it's also a, a good idea to have a large group like this and a foundation funding um, the projects because then we have in-house requirements that we stay consistent with across the all the groups that we work with. Um, and so then there's more consistency across them. And that's it's part of it as well as just, you know, not trusting the data that's in the information that's out there and pretty much going, well, we, we might need to start from, from day zero here and just build information that we trust. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what I was going to say is what I should also mention is that the, so OMF, the, the structure of OMF itself is set up as a foundation under Linda Tannenbaum mm-hmm. who had a daughter who was, who was unwell with the condition and she, mm-hmm. she was a mother and she wanted to get something happening and so she started this foundation but it happened in association with um, Ron Davis or Dr. Ron Davis who is the director of the scientific advisory board that we have at Open Medicine Foundation. So we have two Nobel laureates on this board wow. and, so, and, uh, and five from the National Academy of Sciences. So we have... Not too uh, shabby. Not too shabby at all. You know, they're, they're really tremendous researchers and a lot of, the, you know, they, they have a lot of say in dictating um, the type of research that gets going and yeah. the type of work that's getting done. And so that's kind of how we kind of do our governance, I guess. Yeah, of, of it's where- that
0: you have tastemakers on the board, <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. So they're the ones who do a lot of this kind of decision making. And then they have uh, Dr. Ron Davis, who's also a director at the Stanford Collaborative Research Center. We have Dr. Ron Tompkins and Dr. Wenzon Zhao, who are also on the Scientific Advisory Board, but they're also the directors of the Harvard Collaborative mm-hmm. Research Center. And then we have Dr. Jonas Burquist, who is um, also on the Scientific Advisory Board, but also the director of the Uppsala collaborative research center which is in sweden That's so those great. are the ones and i just wanted to mention that
0: yeah so
1: you understand like the context of how all this is organized and my mm-hmm. role is really as a science liaison is to kind of kind bridge of
0: bridge the gap there
1: it's to bridge the gap of all the community all the things that come into omf all the research ideas and and people out there in the broader community kind of condensing those research ideas and, and um um, and then, from the other side, we have all the research that 's happening in house and translating that to the broader community to create more uh, information for people and update them because you know along this journey, you know you can update people with research papers, but we like to try and update people as fast as possible, so we yeah. like to keep people abreast of what 's going on um, so that they know because really hope is a big factor for people with these diseases um, and that 's what 's really required, and that 's something that open medicine foundation does provide on the daily in terms of helping patients is that provision of hope and we hear that a lot from them
0: yeah. and,
1: and we definitely definitely un, i've come to understand that for sure because you have that you know when you're in a condition where you don't or you want to know that people are behind the scenes working on this every day they're trying to work out some something on this disease and trying to work towards a treatment and that's the hope that that we provide
0: yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you're really putting the patients first, even though you're working on the research and stuff. It's all for the patients. That's really what you're about.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the pro- it's all for the patients. Um, and that's probably where chronic disease, you know, that's probably where medicine yeah, needs, to needs to be, right? I mean, that's, yeah. where, that's, that's the goal for everyone in every different type of condition is to get to that point because yeah. uh, people are what matter um, and the lives that they lead is what matters. Um, and that's, so that matters to us.
0: How would your average person listening help, you know, um, like if we're all going to sort of grow the community to continue research and because research really is the key, then how can someone listening get involved in the fight for awareness and, um, you know, help continue the effort?
1: Um, Well, just by being active, being present um, on social media, connecting, I think social media is really a great platform for this because you, in a way, it is trying to create a network in what we're trying to do, which mm. is, you know, we'll have Facebook, we'll have social media for Open Medicine Foundation or for ME-CFS, other groups that are available, and then they can spread and disseminate information onto their pages and then other groups that's a very that's i think that's an easy way of doing it but also you can get really active if you want to so put up for volunteering for for trying to raise awareness um, Mm. going to your government um, trying to make contact with them trying to educate other people of this condition when you have this disease i mean first and foremost educating yourself as well about the disease that you have i mean a lot of people do it um Mm. And I guess we're fearful for the ones who haven't caught on to the biomedical and all this other information that's out there and are really just listening to their doctors and kind of suffering right now and may be completely unaware of all this other stuff that's going on. So yeah. to reach out into communities as much as we can um, and and just talk to people around you and and kind of get involved. I mean, I am a researcher, but I did get involved with the Australian government. I went to some meetings with ministers to try and educate them about it. Um, and it was good for my part. I was an expert, I guess, in the area mm. to mm. explain to them. But also along with me, I had patience. And uh, yeah. they always. it's always important to tell the personal story because people really connect with personal stories,
0: I think. Absolutely. Well, that's another reason why this podcast exists, to yes, tell stories. Yes, excellent. Right. Right? Um, do you have any tips for someone who maybe think something is off, like maybe they haven't got a diagnosis yet, but they're like, gee, Chris has mentioned a few things today that I have. Um, What would you suggest that someone in that position do if they're not being recognized by their medical team for a particular diagnosis, or they're not being recognized by those around them in general? Um, What can people do to, to seek help and to seek a diagnosis and treatment?
1: well i would um probably do definitely do the research that you can on the internet i mean there is a resource there and look into different areas try and connect to perhaps a uh a group um for the mecfs group within your local area wherever you are um or your country or your state or wherever um or any of the big organizations that um like open medicine foundation themselves and and really, just um, inform yourself about the condition itself um, in terms of what you would do. The number one thing is what we do for ME/CFS patients, uh, which I, which you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm I'm a, I'm a PhD doctor, which is very different. But I. Um, I can recommend that pacing is is very important. And so, what we talk about pacing is that not not pushing yourself into this crash. So we call the crash is what the post-exertion malaise symptom I was talking about. We call that um, a crash, I guess. And that's really what happens. You get to a point where you overexert yourself and you get significantly worse and if you know that that's happening to you if you recognize that that happens like and things like small things happen like things that shouldn't do that to you and you that starts happening then you need to consider that getting to those points when you crash are actually quite bad Mm. and not good for you and so what you need to do is um learn or understand your body learn learn how you're working and what's happening to you leading up to that and trying understand the early warning signs if you can not everyone gets them Um, patients do a whole number of different things to look at this and that's that's probably one of the best pieces of advice is just to try and not or try and avoid those crashes and then it's also a balance at the same time because you don't want to decondition either completely and that is a that is a problem that happens with a lot of chronic disease obviously they especially if you're bed bound for long periods of time you know deconditioning itself has a negative impact on the body and so it's kind of working out how you can try and build yourself out of that you know Mm. and there's always different levels so you don't have to go from lying in bed all day every day to then standing or walking or anything like that. You know, it's a very slow pace. So when we say pacing for some person with me it might be that they raise their arm, um, try and raise their arm once a day type of mm-hmm. thing. So, and that's how severe it can get. It can get extremely debilitating to the point where they need in, in home care. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And J tubes and, and all sorts of different things. So it's, um, it's really based on the individual themselves. That would be, that would be my piece of advice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, No, that's, that's really great. And when this episode goes live, you guys are also going to be with OMF you're going to be in the middle of a fundraising initiative as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So we have a fundraising initiative uh, that really kicks off in October. Mm. Um, But it also in the, in the weeks leading up to that. And we call it—it's called Triple Tuesday—and so on that we have people who back the idea of, of funding, Open Medicine Foundation, and people who donate for every dollar they will they will, add in to, mm. I guess. So a match. It, it's an ability, yeah—a triple, a double match. So, in a way, you're you're able to, I guess, triple the size of your donation which you give Mm -hmm. and so that's a big campaign that we like to link uh, everyone together it really really pushes the momentum of giving Um, and it's something that's extremely important for Open Medicine Foundation because I mean all the most majority of the money goes to research um, Mm -hmm. as much as we can we have very very little um, costs for the foundation itself Um, and uh, that type of research is, is being crucial in trying to find answers for this disease
0: yeah absolutely um and if anyone wants to find you as well and find omf um after listening to this episode where can they find you guys
1: so www.omf.ngo <laughs> yeah. is the is the home website so that's that's the one to go for um, yep
0: and you can find information about chris and so many of the other uh, partners and research fellows um and people who are working for the organization there which is really wonderful yeah There's lots of info there about MECFS, about the state of research and um it's a great place to start
1: that's right i mean that's the that's the goal is to try and build as as a reservoir of information for people to have mm-hmm. um and but then also obviously on facebook and twitter as well as i mentioned um and instagram um yeah. those are great tools for and we share kind of updates every every day I think um and then we also have emails you can subscribe and we we'll, we have you know, email updates or email blasts that we send out to people
0: part of it is just like having more of these conversations isn't it like to normalize the conversation that this disease exists um yes. let alone to work on the research involved in diagnostics and and uh treatment you know just continuing to talk about it. It sounds like the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right?
1: Yeah, just keep being louder and keep making an impression um, is the way to do it. And just, yeah, squeaky wheel gets the grease. And that's the thing that you're trying to break. Uh, part of the negative part of the cycle was that people like, associating this with a psychological illness or there was something wrong with them or they were causing their own disease in their own head or trying to make this happen. That created like a really significant stigma for people with m mm-hmm. a c f s and um, when that happens, you know it's hard to have confidence in yourself to kind of ask for help or draw attention to yourself because you feel like there's there's something wrong, and uh,
0: the energy when you've got the post exertion malaise like and yeah I mean, that's yeah like a joke when i'm saying it you know like well i can't i don't even have the energy to do it, but actually, a lot of these patients don't even have the energy reserves to advocate for themselves in any way at all.
1: No, definitely not. They don't. And uh, that's also important as well. I mean, if you know people, you know, when you have the illness, it's important obviously to try and if you can, Mm. but especially when you know someone who is sick and not just, you know, not just speaking to the people who think they may have this, but speaking to the people who think they may know someone who has this, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's really important to advocate or, or speak for people who can't. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there is a lot of value f- for doing that, um, for everybody. Um, and, uh, it's very, very necessary to do this. So I think that would be also an important point to make.
0: And the point here is that it's not just in your head. This is a real disease and, and as no. are working to find a cure, to find treatments, to, to create diagnostic pathways so that doctors will recognize this disease more and not use, you know, diagnostics from 30 years ago, as we discussed. So yeah,
1: that's, that's, that's definitely the goal. I mean, that's yeah. the, you know, and you got to break that. Um, and, and I feel like that's being broken, but there are a lot of people out there who that's, I guess, who haven't kind of escaped that, those clutches and.
0: Uh, well, there's still deniers out there. It's. Yeah,
1: the, there is, there is. And there's yeah. probably still people under, under the care of deniers as well. So you've got to make sure that um, you try and, get that information out there as far as and wide as you can so that people go, Oh, wait a minute, there is a better answer to this question. Mm. And actually I can re- rebuild, you know, kind of the confidence in in what's happening to me and, and be, and be like, well, this is, this is a disease that's happening to me and being telling people about it. I think yeah. that's really important. And I guess it's obviously very difficult. I know that, um, but it's something that is really important. And um, you probably have a lot of experience with other people on this show mm-hmm. talking about that but that's yeah
0: this this might come a little out of left field but do you think that the current political climate is having an influence on the government's ability or interest in, in um, the U.S. yeah in the u.s but i mean Broadly. it's going conservative in a lot of places right do you think that 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 that's having an influence on on the government's government's interest in um validating the existence of this disease as well and, and other diseases that you know are, not I, really, are really I, I really hope not
1: I can't imagine this would be a i mean i really hope not mm. I mean, this is something that affects all people um, yeah. and all humans in, in you know and it's and it doesn't seem to be you know it, it's it's an equal opportunity <laughs> disease again <laughs> yeah. it affects everyone equally and it doesn't I really- want
0: to laugh and cry at the same time yeah, <laughs> no,
1: but, you know that's it doesn't care where you, yeah. you know, what who you are or where you come from or, or anything about that so yeah. i can't imagine that would be something that uh would matter to to these political groups but okay. i hope not in any case
0: yeah yeah well and as you've said a lot of it is like it takes some people having a personal connection to it right to really respond but now's the time to get involved and to to continue the momentum with you guys. Um, yeah. I mean,
1: it's, we're really, I mean, it's, in some ways it's, 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 you know, it's obviously horrible, but uh, you know, and we're excited at least in the ability to be at the initiation of this, you know, new field of research and, um, and this kind of new era of of understanding for this condition. I think it's um, a very interesting time to be a part of this um, because there are so many diseases that we now know, but we take for granted the history of how they initiated and being really at the first steps of that, I think is uh, really, really, really interesting. Um, And it's a, and it's a great opportunity for people to now start getting involved and have the confidence, you know, in fundraising for these, the research that's happening because the research is really top notch.
0: Yeah, and for the patients out there listening, knowing that there's community out there for you.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah.
0: And that's the great hope. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Chris. It's been great having you on.
1: Thank you very much, Lauren. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.